Good morning. This morning we're going to be looking at uh, two passages. One is Mark 15, 21 to 41. And then the second, which will be the, the body of what we'll be looking at this morning, is going to be from Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. The theme for this morning is the cross. We've been singing about it. Uh, we've been praying about it. We've been uh, glorying in it and worshiping God for it. And this morning we're going to preach about it. There's nothing more important that I could be talking about this morning. There's nothing more relevant, nothing more deserving of our attention this morning. The cross stands at the center of all of human history. Everything that God was doing beforehand anticipated the cross Everything that God has been doing since looks back on the cross. It is by far the single most important event that has ever happened in the history of humanity. Every person who has ever lived, their eternal destiny hangs upon how they relate to the cross. To make it more personal, every person in here, everyone under the sound of my voice, your eternal destiny hangs upon where you stand in relationship to the cross. Every Christian's daily life, even if we may not know it, is directly linked to the cross, and the cross has great implications for how we live our lives on a daily basis. Paul told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, he said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's not that he didn't talk about other things. It's just that the cross, Jesus Christ, slain for sinners, Christ and him crucified, was the center. It was at the center. Pastor Mace just talked about Christ being the center of our lives. The cross was at the center of everything that informed the way the Apostle Paul taught, the way he lived, the way he related to others. And so that's what we seek to do at Epiphany as well. We want, we want to know nothing amongst us except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so that's why the cross is at the center of our prayers. It's at the center of our singing it's at the center of our preaching. It's why we have communion every single week to have that, that weekly reminder of the cross. Um, in serving, in service, we want to be cross-centered in everything we do. And we have this emphasis, not because it's our own idea or we think it's cute, but it's the Bible's emphasis. The Bible emphasizes the cross, and so we should take our cues from Scripture. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to read uh, Mark's account of the event itself, uh, just to remind ourselves afresh. I think a lot of times we can, especially as we grow in the Christian faith, we can take a lot of things for granted. Uh, we can uh, sinfully come to passages and say, oh, I already know that. I don't really need to, you know, I've read that a thousand times so I can just, you know, tune out. Um, that's, a, that's a sinful response. We don't want to do that. Uh, we need to be reminded afresh of what Christ has done um, and so we're going to uh, look at the account, at Mark's account, of uh, the crucifixion of Christ. Uh, and then after that, we're going to read the fullest New Testament description of what was going on behind the event. So we're going to take a look at the event to remind ourselves afresh. And then we're going to look at Romans 3:21 to 26 to see what was going on behind the event. 
And the theme that we'll take from these texts is the glory of the cross. Mark chapter 15. Starting in verse 21. This is God's word. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now we'll read Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 26. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. May God bless to our minds and our hearts the reading of his word. And let me just, let's just pray. (laughs) Father, when we consider the cross and what you did when you crushed your son, we are undone. Who is up to such a task to preach on such glorious truths? We pray in the name of Jesus that you would open our eyes and our hearts to hear 
your word. God, we pray that we would not only understand truth, but that we would feel it and that we would respond to it. And we pray that your spirit, the spirit of God, would use the word of God to reveal the son of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just to set the context a little bit, Romans chapter 3, it finds us at the close of an argument that Paul has spent the last three chapters building. Uh, Verse 21, where we're going to start tonight, it answers the issue that Paul has been dealing with all along. That problem is the universal guilt of sinful humanity before a holy God. The universal guilt of sinful humanity before a holy God. That's the question that's being dealt with in the first few chapters of Romans. Now, Paul has been dealing with our biggest issue, uh, even if we don't feel like it's our biggest issue. We have to allow the scriptures to tell us what our issues are. We have to allow the scriptures to prioritize for us what the main problems are in our lives. According to Romans, our biggest issue is not our low self-esteem. It's not our bad economic status. Our biggest problem is not that we don't feel loved. It's not that we lack education. According to Romans and according to the Bible, our biggest problem is sin. Sin, which has brought us under the righteous wrath and indignation of a holy God. Our biggest issue is that we, in our sin, have offended God. God is offended. You ever been offended before? (laughs) As we go through life, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll live our lives according to who we know we can offend and who we know we better not offend. See, it's a difference between offending a friend and offending a police officer. Two different things. It's one thing if your toddler is offended by you. It's another thing if your employer is offended by you. It's one thing if your grandmom is offended. It's another thing entirely if the head of the mafia is offended by you. In each case, the difference is the amount of power that the offended party has over you. And so with that in mind, we should clearly see the problem with offending an omnipotent God. God is all-powerful. God holds the heavens and the earth and everyone's eternal destinies in the palm of his hand. There's nothing that can stop him, nothing that can keep him from performing his purpose and his will. He is exalted above the heavens. He is majestic. He is holy. He is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, all which means he's God. It should give us pause to think that we have offended this person. The Lord Jesus Christ himself in Matthew chapter 10:28 he said, "Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell." And see this this is the problem. Humanity as a whole does not fear God. Humanity as a whole fears other people, uh, fears uh, consequences for bad actions. But when it comes to God himself, the one who should be feared, God is not considered in this world as he should be. And so when someone is rightly and genuinely offended, it's basically as though an assault were taking place on their very character. That's what sin is. Sin is an assault on the person of God. Sin says to God, this is what sin says to God. It says, thanks God, but no thanks. 
I'll accept your blessings, I'll accept your smiles, I'll accept the good things that you want to give me, but when it comes to obeying your law, when it comes to obedience and righteousness, when it comes to anything that's going to restrict my own personal freedoms, no thanks, God. I'd rather just do my own thing. You can, you can feel free to come on in when it's of my benefit, and I feel like it's of my benefit, but if I don't feel that way, stay out. That's what sin is. Sin is, is atheistic in nature. It seeks to do away with God. What every sin would seek to do is to destroy God if it could. Because it doesn't want God in the picture. Sin does not want God hovering over our shoulders telling us what it is that we can and cannot do. Every sin is an assault on the very person of God. Sin says to God, we do not want this king to rule over us. Sin is so evil. Perhaps the biggest evil of sin is that it prefers things that are infinitely less than God over God himself. Trifles or trinkets, like our sister called it earlier this morning. The evil of sin is preferring things that are infinitely less than God over God himself. And God is not having it. He is not having it. Because God knows that his glory is the greatest value in the universe. God has always valued his own glory above everything else. He does everything for his glory. Isaiah 48, 11, he says, how should my name be profaned? I will not give my glory to another. We were created for the glory of God. Everything that God has done from eternity past to right now to eternity future has been with his glory in mind. And so therefore, God is offended because with every sin, we spit on the glory of God. And nobody cares. We are in a city filled with people who could care less about the glory of God. Every single day we turn on the television and it reveals people who program the shows, people who act in the shows, people who write the shows, who could care less about the glory of God. It means absolutely nothing. The sad reality is that many in the visible professing church could care less about the glory of God. And this is evil. And because of this, God is angry. And so this is what we saw in uh, Paul giving, he's giving this case against humanity. And this is just to bring us up to where we are in the text. From Romans 1, 18 to 320... Basically, what we get is God's case against humanity. The question being asked is, how do sinners get right in the sight of a holy God? God is the, prosecu God is the, is the judge. He's using the apostle Paul as the prosecutor. And so what he does is he, he convicts or finds three different types of people guilty before this God. The first type in Romans 1, 8. 18 to 32 is the Gentile or the pagan. That's the person who is apart from any kind of special revelation. They didn't have the law of Moses like the Israelites had. They're apart from special revelation. For our purposes today, it would be the person who's never, ever sat under any kind of teaching from the word or ever heard the gospel. Paul condemns this group of people as guilty before God. The second group of people that he dealt with in chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, is what would be known as the moralist. Uh, the first group was just the pagan, wilding out, could care less about God. Their standards are ridiculous, just doing their thing, wilding. The second group of people is the person who would say, no, I, I, have, I have moral standards. I have morals. I'm a good person. This is the moralist, the person who would seek to be right with God based on their own morals or their own ethics. Uh, Paul condemns that group of people as being guilty before God because 
what we find out in chapter 2 is, one, they don't even live up to their own standards of morality, uh, but two, the fact that they've tried to, tried to replace the law of God with their own law, it only actually condemns them in the end because at the last day their, their own conscience is going to condemn them of all the wickedness that they've committed against God. And then the third group of people that is found guilty is the religious hypocrite in, in chapter 2, verses 17 to 28. Uh, this is the person, um, the Jew, who had the revelation of the law, who had the special privileges from God of, um, of uh, the law of Moses and the promises and the foundation of the patriarchs and the tradition that was passed down. They were exposed to the law of God, to his word, but... Their problem was that they were boasting in the law as though the law itself were able to save them. And so they, they had the problem of boasting in the law saying, look, look at us. We got the law. You know what I'm saying? We're not like these cats who were over in the cave somewhere. We got the law. We have Moses like God spoke to our forefathers. We don't know about y'all, but we got the law. Yet they weren't even keeping the law. How foolish to boast in something, you're not even keeping it. For our purposes today, it would be the believer who boasts in anything that is peripheral to the gospel or maybe even the gospel itself but is not living in accordance to the gospel. Boasting in all other things. Paul says that boasting is evil and that person is guilty before God. In 3, 9 through 20, we get the closing arguments, and it's devastating and it's powerful because what we see is the complete ruin of humanity and sin. And I just want to just read from 9 to 20 in Romans chapter 3. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. And then he sums it up by saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes. What we see in these verses is the absolute corruption of sinful humanity. In verse 10, we get an interesting breakdown. We see none is righteous. That is total corruption morally. No one understands. That's total corruption of the mind. No one seeks for God. Total corruption of the will. Paul goes through this list of body parts. You see the tongue and you see the throat. You see the lips. You see the feet. It's almost as though he's saying from head to toe, we are filled with corruption. And the summary of it all is there's no fear of God. In verse 19, it says, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. On the last day, no one's going to be able to cop a plea. Nobody's going to be able to say, but, 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 but. Nobody's going to be able to stand big and bad before this God on Judgment Day. When Judgment Day comes, he will silence all mouths. There will be no argumentation. There will be no excuses. Everyone will be held accountable to God. If Romans ended at verse 20, we would all be in trouble. But praise God for the but now of verse 21. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, there are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than just these two words, but now. So what we're looking at is a before and after. Before we were condemned in our sin, 
after we're justified through faith in Christ. Before, God had nothing but wrath and anger for us. Now, God has love and mercy and grace for us. And so that's what the apostle is going to unpack in our verses. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God. This righteousness of God, it corresponds to chapter 1, verse 17, which speaks about the righteousness of God, which is revealed by faith. This is a foreign righteousness. This is a righteousness that does not belong to us. It's a righteousness that originates in God. It's a revelation of God's righteousness. And we'll unpack that more as we go along. It says, this righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So that is, apart from any human effort to keep the Mosaic law, any effort on our part to keep the Ten Commandments, any effort on our part to do anything to make ourselves right with God, this righteousness has appeared apart from that. And although it has appeared and although it's manifested apart from the law, it's something that the law and the prophets do testify to or bear witness to. In other words, this is not something new. It's not like this is not a new plan that God had. It's not as though history, human history or redemptive history went on for thousands of years and then God said, oh, you know what? I have a bright idea. No, this righteousness from God is something that we see all throughout the Old Testament. Far too many passages to even go into, but one of the passages that's very clear on this issue is Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 to 6, and I encourage you to turn there. Jeremiah 23, 5 to 6. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely. And shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Verse 6. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. We see a prophecy of the coming Messiah, a prophecy of the one who would sit eternally on the throne of David, fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies that pointed to him, and look at the name by which he's called. The Lord is our righteousness. And we'll unpack that a little bit more later, but it's glorious. So when Paul says the law and the prophets bear witness to it, everything in the Old Testament in some way, shape, or form, points ahead to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 22, he unpacks a little bit more about this righteousness. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And we're going to talk a little bit more later about this faith because faith, faith is so such a key component to um, how we benefit from what happened outside of us 2,000 years ago. This righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. End of verse 22, it says, For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned, and that word fall short is in the present tense. It's, it's a... It's a continuous action. It can be translated and are falling short of the glory of God. So, so, so it's not as though at one point in time we sinned and back then we fell short of God's glory, but rather we have sinned and we are continuously falling short of God's glory. And we spoke earlier about the glory of God and how that is central to everything that we do, that, that he does and how it is a wicked and wicked, evil thing to fall short of the glory of God. I'm convinced that we don't find grace as amazing as we should find grace. 
Grace has become a buzzword, uh, like many words in the Christian faith that we hear repeated often. You know, we say, thank God for his grace. And we pray, pray, God, praise you for your grace. Without really, like, thinking about what that entails. And I also believe that we don't find grace amazing anymore because we don't understand sin. At the moment that we begin to understand sin and how wretched it is and how offensive it is and how much of a stench it is in the nostrils of God and how hateful sin is, the moment we understand how deep our debt was to God, an infinite debt that we could never pay ourselves, only then will we begin to get a taste of how amazing grace is. And so the hope in this talk today is that God would whet our appetites to appreciate his grace and to appreciate what he has done for us in the cross of Christ. Verse 24, it says that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I'll stop there. We're going to look at these three terms, three huge, important terms in this text. We see justified at the beginning of verse 24. We see redemption at, towards the end of verse 24. And then we see propitiation at, uh, at the beginning of verse 25. These are words that every Christian should have in their vocabularies. Not only should it be in our minds, not only should we know these things, but it should be in our hearts. These truths should inform the way that we live on a daily basis. And I just want to spend some time unpacking each one of these terms. I get this from my man James Boyce, um, the late pastor at 10th Prez, who was a beast in the text. <laughs> but who gave this illustration. It's something I saw very early on in my Christian life, and it changed my walk forever. Um, and so I want to introduce this to those who uh, may, not, may not be familiar with it. Yeah. What we have here is a diagram. And I would encourage you, it's going to be up here for a while. It's not, it's not going anywhere. In this diagram, we have a triangle. At the top of the triangle, we have God the Father. At the lower left-hand corner of the triangle, we have Jesus. At the lower right-hand corner of the triangle, we have the Christian. I'm going to talk about each one of these terms. First, we'll talk about justification. Say it, justification. Justification is an act of God the Father by which he declares sinners to be righteous by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. I'll repeat that. Justification is an act of God the Father by which he declares sinners to be righteous. By grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Justification is a legal term. We got any law, any law people? Anybody in the law field at all? Okay. Word. It's, it's a legal term. It's, it's the exact opposite of condemnation. So when... When it, it, it's a pronouncement. When a judge says you are justified, what he's saying is you are in a right standing before the court of law. So if a criminal does something, or say, or say someone does not do something, and they go to court, they're arrested for it, they go to court, and it turns out that the jury says that they're not guilty, what the judge says is justified. <laughs> That is, as far as the law is concerned, you're fine. Now, justification, it doesn't 
It doesn't make you guilty or not guilty. In other words, it's just the pronouncement of where you stand before the law. Does that make sense? So in other words, if somebody is guilty of something, but somehow they get off, I'm not going to say that. If they're guilty and somehow they get off and the judge says justified, he's not making them innocent of the crime that they committed. He's just declaring, as far as the law is concerned, you're fine, you can go free. That's what just, justification is, in, is a legal act by God the Father where he looks at sinners and says, as it regards my law, you're good. You're free. You can go. This is amazing. It's amazing because we're guilty. It's not like he's saying to innocent people, go ahead. He says this to guilty people. If you look down in Romans chapter 4, listen to this. Romans 4, verse 4. It says, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. In other words, you work all week and your employer gives you a check. You don't say thank you for the gift. You say, give me my check. (laughs) I earned it. However, verse 5, to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, not who justifies the good person, not who justifies the moral person, not who justifies the one who's made themselves right or who has cleaned themselves up or who has done enough good deeds, not the one, he doesn't justify the one who prays five times a day. He justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted to him as righteousness. This is what we're talking about in justification. Justification should have a shouting. There's a lot of things that people will get up and run around the church about. None of them, none of them are as important and as meaningful as the fact that a holy God has declared sinners who are guilty before him to be righteous, even though we're not righteous. That's justification. The second term is redemption. Redemption, which we find in verse 24. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus. Definition of redemption, the securing of freedom through the payment of a price. The securing of freedom through the payment of a price. This is a marketplace term uh, most commonly used in the realm of slavery. And what redemption is, if, if a cat had sold himself into bondage, either he had a debt that he could not pay, and so he went and said, you know what, I'm going to work for you until I pay off that debt. What someone could do is come along and say, you know what, I got loot, and the money that I have is more than the price. Let's negotiate. Let's, let's talk. He goes to the master and says, let's talk. Let's put the money out on the table. I want him. And the master says, what you got? Talk to me. Lays it out in shekels or whatever they used back then. If the master says, okay, I'll take it. That slave now belongs to a new master. He has been purchased. That slave has no rights of his own. Everything that he had submitted to the previous master now belongs to the new master. He is owned. He is bought. He is purchased. That's redemption. The securing of freedom, right? Now, the new master is free to say to the slave, if he wants to, the new master can say, you know what? I just, want, I just want you to go free, fam. Go do your thing, start a family. You don't have, I paid your debt for you. You're good. Or the new master could say, all right, you belong to me now. Now you used to do his lawn, now do my lawn. Whatever. The new master had complete rights over the slave once he purchased him. This is redemption. We see the parallels? The securing of freedom 
through the payment of a price. The Lord Jesus Christ secured our freedom through the payment of a price. And the price is his blood. The blood in verse 25. By his blood. Whenever we see blood in the New Testament, the blood is referring to the death of Christ. The death of Christ was the price that was paid in order to secure our freedom from slavery. John chapter 8, I believe it's verse 31, says, Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So we once were slaves to our former master, which was sin. Jesus Christ came in with his blood, put down the price of his death, and said, I'm securing the freedom of that slave to sin, and now he belongs to me. That's redemption. Each one of these things has very, very practical implications on our lives. We'll talk about that. The third term that we see is propitiation. Propitiation. Say it. Propitiation. Please don't leave here without knowing what propitiation means. And you will be tested. (laughs) If I know some of the people up in here, you will be tested. Propitiation. An act of Christ where, on the cross, he absorbs the full wrath and anger of God the Father against sin, thus opening the door for God to extend nothing but kindness and mercy towards believers without violating his justice. Propitiation, I'm going to say it again, an act of Christ where, on the cross, He absorbs the full wrath and anger of God the Father against sin. That's what we're just singing about, right? The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Thank you, Jesus. Thus opening the door for God to extend nothing but kindness and mercy towards believers without violating his justice. We'll talk about the second part of that, but propitiation Without, like, wrath and anger is implied in propitiation. It implies that God actually does have wrath. Propitiation implies that God actually does have anger. It's a religious term, and it was most often used back in the pagan religions where they had this sense that God or the gods were angry with them. (laughs) And Boyce said a lot of times we can like dismiss old ancient pagan religions and say, oh, they they bow down to to blocks of wood. They're, you know, we're, we're much more sophisticated than they. But at least they had some kind of notion of the anger of the gods. At least they knew that their sin deserved punishment. Today, we've completely done away with any idea that God actually has anger, that he actually has wrath, and that he's actually angry against sin, and not just sin, love the sinner but hate the sin, but he has wrath against sinners. In other words, in hell, it is sinners who will be taking the full punishment of God, not just sin, but sinners. And so propitiation and and the difference between the pagan religions and Christianity is that the pagans, what they would seek to do is by some act of their own, they would seek to appease the gods. So they would say, okay, we're going to do these sacrifices. We're going to cut ourselves. We're going to do something, say chant. We're going to uh, do some kind of ritual to try to appease the wrath of the gods. But what Christianity says is that there's nothing that we can do to appease God's wrath. But that Christ, who is God himself in the flesh, he himself is the one who propitiates the Father. And so I want to look back to this diagram. Justification is something that God the Father does to the Christian. In other words, God the Father is the subject of the action. The Christian is the object of the action or the recipient of the action. 
God justifies the Christian. That is, he declares the Christian to be righteous, declares the Christian to be good, free before his bar of justice. At the lower left-hand side, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who redeems the Christian. That is, Christ himself pays the price for the Christian's freedom from slavery and bondage to sin so that we no longer belong to the old master, but we belong to a new one. Jesus is the subject of that action. The Christian is the object of that action. Propitiation, Jesus propitiates God the Father. It's something, and and this is mysterious, this is something that takes place, we have nothing to do with propitiation. This is, this is a transaction between God the Father and God the Son. The Son, in relationship to the Father, he propitiates him. That is, he, he, he absorbs everything that God the Father has against our sin, thereby making God propitious or gracious or favorable towards us. Now, if you look at this diagram, (laughs) one of the things you'll see is you'll see a bunch of arrows, right? You see an arrow pointing from Jesus, the Son, to God the Father. There's an arrow pointing from God the Father to the Christian in justification. And there's an arrow pointing from Jesus to the Christian in redemption. There are no arrows pointing from us. This work of salvation happened completely outside of us. What do we contribute in this diagram? Nothing. We contribute absolutely nothing. It is absolutely the work of God. Salvation is of the Lord. It's something that God has accomplished. It's his finished work. All we are to do is to to receive it with an empty hand by faith. God has wrought, this is, ah, this is so banging. This is not, like human beings could never come up with this. You understand this? Man is too proud, too arrogant to come up with a salvation like this. Every other human religion finds some way to put our filthy works into the equation. Christianity is the only thing that says it's not by our works. It's not by anything that we have done. We can't earn it. Because we can't earn it, it means we can't lose it. (laughs) It was given to us. It's a gift. All we have to do is accept it by grace. And so that's what we see. In verse 24, I I pray, I pray that this will get ingrained into our hearts. We have to know that we're justified. We have to know that there's no condemnation for us if we're in Christ Jesus. It's the only thing that's going to keep us from being burnt out in our Christian walks. It's the only thing that's going to keep us from legalism. It's the only thing that's going to keep us from looking down our noses at other people who don't meet up to our own standards. Justification. Justification is the only thing that's going to help us when the enemy is whispering in our ear. When the world and sin has us burdened. We have to look to the cross. The cross doesn't just get us in, but we live by the cross daily. Because when we sin, we have to know that Christ has stood in the gap for us and that we are justified and that we're free to not wallow in our sin, but to get up. We have to know that we're redeemed. We have to know that Christ has purchased us, that we're no longer slaves to sin. The very first time Paul says to do something in Romans, y'all know when it is? It's not until chapter 6. He goes from chapters 1 to 6, and the very first time he actually tells us to do something is not until six chapters in. Everything before was him unpacking and laying out what God has done. You know what the first thing is that he says for us to do? Consider ourselves dead. 
consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. That is, take, take stock, realize, look at what God has already done for us, and then live like it. <laughs> this is heavenly stuff. This, this is, nobody could come up with this. We have to know that we're redeemed. We have to know that we're no longer slaves to sin, that we have a new master. Getting back to the text in verse 24. Justified by his grace as a gift. Every one of these terms is precious by grace. We've already talked about that a little bit. Free, unmerited, unearned, had nothing to do. God didn't look at us and say, you're cute. And so therefore, because you're cute, I'm going to treat you this way. God didn't say, oh, he's a pretty good guy. Let me extend my favor. No, God justifies the ungodly. His grace is something that came freely and we praise God for it. By his grace as a gift. Whom God put forward. Put forward is precious because it it shows that The death of Christ is not something that was done in a corner. It's not something that was done like somewhere on the low, but it was public. God publicly displayed his son as a wrath-bearing substitute. He put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. By his blood. We spoke of it before. It speaks of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be received by faith. Now, as we get ready to close, I just want to talk about uh, verse 25. And I believe in verse 25 we get the deepest insight into the why of the cross. We've already looked at the act of the cross and mark the event itself. We've looked a little bit at the implications of the cross. Verse 25 is heavy because we get insight into the why of the cross. At the end of verse 25, it says, this, speaking about Christ being put forward publicly as a propitiation, this was to show God's righteousness. The purpose of the cross was to display or demonstrate or reveal God's righteousness. This is so important because what we see here is a God-centered view of the cross. Oftentimes, well-meaning believers will look at the cross and only see our benefits and only see that it was for us and it was about me and you love me so much that you did this for me. Not that there's not a place like, amen, like God has done this for us, but it's not about us first and foremost. That's why we have problems with that song. You took the fall and thought of me above all? No. No. He thought of us, but it wasn't above all. Above all, this was to show God's righteousness. This was to demonstrate that God is in fact holy. That God is in fact just. That God does in fact punish sin and that God will not allow his glory to be spit upon. He will not allow his glory to be trampled upon. God takes sin seriously. This was to demonstrate the worth of God's own holiness, of his own righteousness, of his own majesty, of his own moral perfection, of his own glory. That's what the cross was about at the root. And this is why it says, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. That is, 
everybody who came before the cross, and it, this is something that we have to, oh God, help us to feel this. We have to feel this because this is something that, this is something that people, by and large, are not concerned about. People, by and large, do not care about the righteousness of God. Do not care that God is shown to be holy. We would accept, and, and this is a good diagnostic test for you, by and large, we would accept salvation no matter how it came, even if God were unjust in the process. We care so little about the glory of God and so much about saving our own behinds that God can save us. Do it any kind of way you want to, God, even if you're shown to be unrighteous, just as long as I get to escape hell for eternity. That's not how God operates. God does everything for his glory. And we need to be a people. Oh, God, make us into a people who would say, if you can't be shown to be just in it, don't save us. How many of us would be willing to pray that? The cross was to show God's righteousness because we have a dilemma. The Old Testament presents a dilemma with God. What do we see in the Old Testament? We see people sinning. We see people who are declared righteous, people who are in the family of God sinning. We see Noah getting drunk. We see Moses killing an Egyptian. We see Abraham selling out his wife to, to, to the Pharaoh. We see David sleeping with Bathsheba, getting her husband killed. Down on and on and on and on and on. We see these people who are saved. But wait a minute. I thought God was righteous. I thought he was holy. What's going on? Like, how are these Old Testament saints getting off the hook? This is the answer, the cross. The cross is the answer. Because the cross, it stands at the center of human history. In other words, everything that happened before the cross anticipated the cross. So God, because he's not finite, because he's not trapped by time, he was already looking thousands of years ahead to the cross and placing David's sin on Jesus Christ, placing Noah's sin on Jesus Christ. He did it ahead of time. It was all predestined. Christ is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God was looking ahead to the cross. It was already done. We look back on it. Old Testament saints looked ahead to it. That's what the animal sacrifices were about. It wasn't about the blood of bulls and goats. That could never take away sin. That was just a type to show that you need a Savior, that, that sin, for all sin against God, it demands bloodshed. It's not the goat that was saving. It was trust in God's provision that he would make thousands of years later in Christ. And so what we see in the cross is the culmination of God's plan of redemption at the cross. God showing his righteousness because he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness, verse 26, at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who places faith in Jesus Christ. Again, we have to allow the scriptures to inform what we're concerned about. God is concerned not only with being the justifier, but being just in doing so. See, if he were to save us in any, kind of, any other way, he would not have been just. You see... This is justice. Christ living a righteous life, credited to our accounts, dying a substitutionary death. See, the penalty was paid. That's God's justice. There's two types of people. Those for whom the penalty for sin was laid on Christ and those who will have to pay the penalty of their own sins in hell. God is concerned with being just and the justifier. No other religion has this. 
The God of Islam is a justifier. The God, what the God of Islam says on, your, on the last day, I'll weigh your good deeds against your bad deeds, and if your good deeds outweigh your bad, then you'll get in. So according to that system, you can be justified, but it's not just. How, how can God, how can a holy God let any sin slide? I'm not going to worship. Who, who wants to worship a God who's not holy? Who wants to worship a God that's just like a sinner? No other system, no other religion has a God who is just and the justifier. Man could not have thought of this. Man could not have thought of this. I want to say a couple things as we attempt to apply it. One thing we want to say is how awful must sin be? How horrible must sin be if it took all of this? How infinitely detestable, sickening, grotesque, grotesque, horrific must sin be. Let this give us a deep, deep fear of God. Let this give us a deep, deep concern for our sin and desire to live a life pleasing to God, if it took all of this, sin must be absolutely, we have no idea. I was once told that if we really knew how sinful we really are as Christians, we'd probably kill ourselves. Second thing we need to consider is the certainty of hell. The, the, the absolute, like, if you're wrestling with whether or not hell is real, look no further than the cross. There are many in uh, evangelicalism today, Christianity today, who would seek to do away with this whole notion of hell. Some pastors say, we're not even going to talk about hell because it's not a pleasant topic. Man, if if God crushed his only son, you better believe there's a hell. Think about the cross. God the Father did not take it easy on Jesus. God the Father did not hold back when it came to pouring out his wrath on his son. And this is his son whom he loved, with whom he was well pleased. God didn't hold anything back but laid it all on him. If he did that to his son... What's he going to do to a sinner? What is he going to do to a sinner who day after day holds up their middle finger at God? You better believe hell is real. And you better believe it's eternal. Third thing it should do is cause us to rejoice in grace. Oh, man. Praise God. Praise God for his grace, y'all. How great a salvation we have. How great a God of this salvation that we have. One of the things that we haven't talked about is the idea that it has to be received by faith. One thing you can't get around in these verses is faith appears over and over. And what faith is, what faith does is it plugs us in to this objective work that was done 2,000 years ago. So, so we have this work, right? God the Father, transaction between the Father and the Son. Now the question is, how in 2007 in North Philly do we benefit from what God did outside of us so long ago? And the answer is faith. <laughs> the answer is faith. It's looking away from ourselves trusting in God's provision and receiving 
what God has done for us as we repent of our sins and live for the glory of God for the rest of our days. Let's pray. (laughs) How great is our God. Lord, thank you. Father, we thank you that in Christ you satisfied your wrath against sin. And Father, we thank you that you have justified us, that you have declared us to be righteous, that you have given us a foreign righteousness, credited the life and death of Christ to our account. We thank you for that, Lord. And Father, we thank you for redemption. Thank you for purchasing us, Lord. Thank you for freeing us from slavery and bondage to sin. God, would you help us to believe you? Would you help us to live lives that reflect that we believe you? And Lord, would you impress these truths upon our heart, create faith in the unbelieving this morning? And as we move into communion, give us a greater appreciation for the cross, the glory of the cross. And may we uphold your glory as the highest value in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.